folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is the Farm Podcast, all one word, dot .store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month in the lowest tier. In the all-access Patreons, you get to go to the Farm's uh, monthly Zoom party, where we usually have some killer presentation with uh, research that I'm involved in, and also all kinds of other goodies, solo state of the union shows, accounts of some of my travels, and uh, yeah, a lot of other perks. But at a minimum, even if you're the lowest tier, you get three and four hours of bonus material with shows with exclusive guests and content. Anyway, today's guest is Repeater on the Farm, and he is one of my favorite ones. He is the curator of The Weird Part, a blog and podcast dedicated to 14 and paranormal phenomena, weird crimes, and all kinds of odd beliefs. He is also based out of Wisconsin, so there are some novel topics to boot. And he's an all-around awesome guy. Folks, I give you guys Vincent Trewell. Vince, thank you so much for dropping by again this evening, sir. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're too kind, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's always great to have you on to talk some weird Wisconsin all right, so as uh, I've just been alluding to, that is our point of discussion here. All right, so a little bit more of this material will also be up on the farm's Patreon to kind of document some of my journeys because I have been going out there recently, have explored some of these stuff, and I did get some interesting footage of our topic uh, for tonight, which is Talesian. Is that how it's pronounced, Vincent? I believe it's Taliesin. Taliesin, Taliesin, yes, 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 yes. The home studio of the legendary architect Frank Lloyd Wright, one of the many remarkable individuals to turn up in Wisconsin. In Wright's case, he was a native son, hence one of the reasons for the studio's location there. As for the name, it is derived from the medieval Welsh, uh, as it's derived from the middle Welsh bar implies, there's always more to the spot than meets the eye. It was built in the midst of Wisconsin's driftless region, a subject Vince and I discussed briefly in a prior show. Located throughout the southwestern part of the state, the whole area is a mecca for high weirdness. No less than three towns out there claim to be the UFO capital, not only of Wisconsin, of the U.S., but of the entire world. It's that kind of place. Besides, right, the specific region has attracted a lot of other curious folks. Located about seven miles from Taliesin is Alex Jordan's House on the Rock, made famous by Neil Gaiman and American Gods. Gaiman himself is fascinated by Wisconsin on the whole, but especially this particular reason, and it's easy to see why. Beyond these two distinctly American shrines, there's also a circle sanctuary. This is a nature preserve established by Selena Fox as a major neo-pagan mecca. It's closely related to the scene in Northern California involving the Church of All Worlds, the Zells, and the Neobard community there. On the whole, it seems many who come here have gotten a certain Celtic vibe from the area, which is interesting. While it didn't necessarily jump out to me while I was there, there's no denying the power of this region. That was... Uh, keenly aware of that throughout uh not necessarily the celtic vibe that jumped out to me but definitely the power of the region i should note so on that note i'm going to let vincent uh, give us a little bit of a rundown of Telius and now the history which is uh endlessly fascinating and a little sinister and while a little remarked upon there have been some curious murders and other tragedies at and from time to time so on that note let's start the show <laughs>
Wright. Well, um, Frank Lloyd Wright was born in Richland Center, which is right in the middle of the Driftless region. The Driftless region, just to clarify, is the part of Wisconsin, and it does go into Minnesota and some small part of Iowa as well, that wasn't crushed by the glacier. So it does look, when you go there, totally different than the rest of Wisconsin, which tends to be pretty flat. This is very hilly. It resembles Appalachia, and it has, you know, very steep up and down hills, and it is very rural. Richland County tends to be the smallest numerical county in the state of Wisconsin. So you're really in the rural environment, and you are really in the hills. And that's where Frank Lloyd Wright grew up um, in his childhood. He moved to Madison when he was 12, and shortly after finishing school, as was easier to do in those days, uh, moved to Chicago and got into engineering and architecture. Um, it's tough to put a value on how big a deal Frank Lloyd Wright is in modern day architecture. He's one of the few superstar architects of all time. And I'd hazard to say that if you asked most people who aren't in the field, who's a famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright's going to be the one that comes up. Um, he was very much a, a genius recognized all around not at the time, not when he started out, but in time, and he lived into his 90s, so he had time to reap the honors that he had earned. Absolutely brilliant man. And the core of his philosophy of architecture, not of everything else, but of architecture, was that buildings should be built in harmony with the natural surroundings. And that they should look as if they grew out of the ground and belonged there rather than being imposed there. Like we flatten this land and then we put this square block on top of it and just put the building there. He advocated what was called organic architecture where buildings flawlessly merged with the surroundings of the water and the land and the rocks and everything around them. And that was... Nobody was doing that when he was doing that. He had influences, but he was really a trendsetter and a, a person who broke through with a lot of his own really new ideas. Um, also, he was big on, we live in the 20th century. And he's barely at the beginning of the 20th century when he's saying this. We, shouldn't, we, should, we have new materials. We have concrete. We have steel. We have sheet glass. We shouldn't be just making glass and steel and metal copies of brick and stone buildings, which are in turn just brick and stone copies of wooden buildings. We should be using the technology we have to make something new and something beautiful. And his philosophy to a large extent was that beauty is good, ugliness is bad. And at least as far as constructing buildings, that's what he followed his whole life. He was a renegade, and in more ways than one. He was a renegade professionally, artistically, but he also was a renegade in his private life. And that's kind of what uh, led to Taliesin being built in the first place. He built it by Spring Green, which is nowhere from where he grew up. I mean, it's right there. And it is generally considered, it's been rebuilt a couple times now, but is generally considered one of the most beautiful buildings on earth. And you're not going to find anything that's not a direct, you know, inspired copy. You're not going to find anything that's like it other than other works of his. It was a truly unique creation. The catch is that he created it as a place for his mistress to live because he was pretty open about believing that there's one set of morality for regular people and there's who should have to follow the rules. And there's another set of morality for special geniuses like us who make their own rules. And he got some of that from Friedrich Nietzsche and he probably just got some of that from that's the way he lived his life. But at some point um, prior to constructing Taliesin in the early 1900s, he was married and had six kids and then left his wife 
for the wife of a client and built Taliesin for his mistress and her children to live. His wife would not immediately give him a divorce as things were very, very different in that era. And this was seen as a huge public scandal, but he was not a person who cared about public scandal. He just was not affected by that at all. And in fact, when the press, the tabloid press, you might say, went after him, they inevitably referred to Taliesin as the love cottage or the love, some variation thereof, you know, as the hideaway. And it's kind of a very, you know, a very parochial way of looking at things. Just to skip around a little bit, the name Taliesin is the name of an actual person, as you mentioned, a Welsh bard from the 500s, who is a fascinating character in his own right. He was known as the King of the Bards, and he lived in, you know, the greater Britain area, but he's a semi-legendary character. There almost certainly was such a person. He wrote a book called The Book of Taliesin, but he's in some sources referred to as a second Merlin, and it's sometimes in folklore claimed that he worked with King Arthur. So there's that. Um, it literally means, Taliesin literally means radiant brow, which was the name of, of the bard. So that's just kind of an interesting starting point. Um, as you mentioned, Jack, if I could interject here for a second, a little bit. Yes, please. Area too, because it's, it's really interesting. Cause like you were saying, you know, I mean, he, um, he tried to design all of his uh, buildings and so forth to be in harmony with the local architecture. And uh, I mean, obviously seeing this in person, you know, you're keenly aware of this. I mean, how much he tried to use a lot of like local materials and so forth. And even stuff that, you know, again, we wouldn't normally uh, think of for like high-end projects like this, like plywood was actually a common uh, material that was used to tell us and uh, surprisingly, but again, uh, you know, that's in keeping with like kind of the philosophy that Vincent was just outlining, you know, he wanted to use like kind of modern materials uh, to create uh, the atmosphere and the, um, you know, the, the uh, buildings that he was constructing. And um, one of the really interesting things about being at this place uh, is the openness of it, the kind of feeling from that. Um <clears throat> I know that Frank Lloyd Rice was really into um, uh, Japanese culture specifically and a lot of the other cultures. And I've kind of wondered if he was familiar with the practice of feng shui and uh, possibly also, I know the um, Scandinavians have kind of like a similar concept of that as well, um, which name is escaping me now. But I mean, you, you really give the sense of that uh, when you're inside this place. Uh, because in just a lot of very large rooms, they're really open. I know they had uh, supposedly painstakingly going to lengths to try to recreate it the way it would have been when Frank Lloyd Wright was there. So, um, yeah, it's especially since I had gone there after going to uh, House on the Rock, it's uh, really a, a bit of a stark contrast, to put it mildly, because, I mean, House on the Rock, there's just so much jam packed into like each and every structure and then sort of by contracts telling us and it's just very open and in that sense at least I mean it does kind of capture like the essence of uh you know Wisconsin in general like uh, Vincent said it's very flat I mean even that area it's definitely more like Appalachia with the hills and so forth but um again you know it's um it's still very open and what have you and you definitely get the sense from being in there. And um, I mean, it was very much designed uh, to be in harmony with the environment. Uh, I mean, of course it was built right around the turn of the 20th century, you know, before electricity really became commonplace and so forth and housing. So, you know, even with just like way it was set up with like, um, you know, the, uh, the roofs, for instance, uh, they're, you know, triangular shaped with no gutters around them. This was done so that in the winters, you know, um, the water would drip down and it would uh, eventually turn into ice and you would have icicles, you know, hanging from like where the gutters would be and they could be pulled down and put in the ice cellar and that would kind of be your refrigeration, uh, you know, when you got into the spring and the summer. 
uh, in addition to being like a studio and a house, it was also basically like a functioning farm as well. I mean, it was meant to be pretty much like a solely soul-sustaining artist colony, at least like in theory. So, you know, that's kind of another interesting thing. It was designed for the livestock in the area. I mean, obviously there's a lot of room for cows and that kind of thing. The surrounding area, you know, there are crops set up. Uh, it's situated on a perch kind of overlooking Highway 23, which is also what House in the Rock is, is off of. I think, like I said at the onset, I mean, these two structures are only like seven miles apart, which is really um, interesting uh, in and of itself. Um, Get a real juxtaposition there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really very much is. I mean, it's just... And then, like I said before, too, it's also fascinating that Circle Sanctuary is, you know, out there, too. I think it's about maybe 10 miles uh, from these two places. And I mean, this whole area is really isolated uh, to begin with. And Circle Sanctuary is even further off of the beach and path. I mean, it's like a 500 acre nature preserve. But again, they, um, you know, they're, they're um, certainly centered around neo-paganism, but specifically a lot of like the Celtic variety. Uh, so that's kind of another interesting thing. I mean, they've also had a lot of ties, as I've talked about before, with the Bard community in Northern California and the whole thing with like the Zells and that type of thing. So it's it's really interesting that a lot of people who have come to this region have made that kind of uh, connection, you know, to the Celtic uh, culture. I mean, it seems like in addition to obviously what uh, Frank Lloyd Light had done with the naming and so forth, I mean, you also have sort of the further... Uh, referencing to the bar tradition in some ways with circle sanctuary being set up there as well so it's just it's fascinating it really is um i can tell you firsthand that when i visited in 2019 uh i just made the statement uh i feel like i could see a leprechaun here like a real leprechaun (laughs) there's just a feel like you're somehow in a in like ireland or something i can't I can't make any sense of it like that rationally, but there's just a vibe there that at least I picked up. Yeah, I mean, it does remind me of Appalachia. I mean, it's certainly a lot uh, more hillier than a lot of rest of the, the, the rest of Wisconsin. And I mean, there is, um, you know, just kind of like there's rolling lands and so forth. So I can kind of see that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just really fascinating. Then, of course, you have the name of the area around there, too, which is Spring Grove. Um, the other town near there too had kind of an interesting name too but it's i mean it's a very lush uh very green environment i can see spring grove but i mean obviously the whole you know concept of grove has that uh kind of trudidic concept with it too and that kind of thing as well so i mean again it's really interesting um and then of course you've got the whole highway 23 thing as well uh, which again you know if you're a discordian i mean that's a fascinating <laughs> appearance that there. number pops right up doesn't it <laughs> mm-hmm. again especially with house and the rocks which you know again i think is totally like kind of a russia crucian thing so there's a I'm lot of la- it's, it's a very interesting area there i mean just to put it mildly so yeah, it's uh, it's just, uh, yeah, again, it's fascinating. So many groups have been drawn there. And I mean, it's, you know, then on top of everything else, it's been kind of turned into even more of a pop culture mecca than it already was because of American gods. I mean, the whole setup is just really fascinating. But uh, anyway, we'll get back to Flank Road Light. So, um, yeah, where were you uh, here? I think with Tilly, yeah, so you were getting back into then or something like that. Yes, uh, he was deeply influenced by Japanese architecture and spent quite a number of years in Japan. And he also tried to create a new form of architecture that was sometimes called the Prairie Model and other times called Usonian, as in U.S. Onian for the United States, that he said, we should stop imitating Europe and make something new here. We have different land, we have different resources. We should make something new and wonderful in this country and not just mimic styles from centuries ago. And that butted heads with a lot, well, butted heads with all of the establishment. You know, he was a a true renegade artist in that sense. Um, And that carried over to how he lived his life and why people in the area 
The tabloid press didn't like him, but also the locals were, even though he was a local, uh, tended to be pretty hostile. Um, I can even say firsthand for the elderly relatives, they don't really have a very good opinion of Frank Lloyd Wright. And that was kind of surprising to me. It's like going to Graceland and somebody's trashing Elvis. You know, <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? But eh, there was, it was a big scandal at the time. Um, so yes, so he planned on a whole different set of architectural principles. And that became a real guiding force in architecture and the way it looks today. Now, that doesn't mean he should be blamed for the stuff that looks bad, because he did have a set of principles that really created beautiful things. And natural light was hugely important to him. Natural, like not needing air conditioning because you've got natural air conditioning. Um, yeah, yeah. Now that's kind of like one of the interesting things. I mean, yeah, there's just, there are windows everywhere in, uh, in Talesian. And uh, it seems like in general, like a lot of his structures... <laughs> that was like a kind of a reoccurring motif <clears throat> certainly from what i can tell uh so yeah that's uh yeah i can see your kind of like point with that with the obsession with natural light i mean it definitely seems like he was trying to find places to put windows almost everywhere in a lot of senses one of the things that i've um read him say was that he wanted to destroy the barrier between indoors and outdoors that as much as possible it should be free-flowing between inside and outside and still be comfortable and like safe and enjoyable. And that was, well, I think you see that with Taliesin. Yeah, no, I mean, you absolutely do. And I mean, kind of the way that it has like the, <clears throat> the gardens kind of like in the interior of the setup of it. I mean, it's, you know, it more or less has sort of like a courtyard sort of like structure uh, where you have like, you know, on the one hand sort of like the living space and uh, then the studio area and then kind of like the area where they would have had the stables and later, which I think again, like the garage and so forth. And there's kind of like uh, the interior where you have like this almost sort of like Japanese, you know, flower garden kind of like set up or something like that. Um, it was like a hill, like in the middle of it, you know, it was like some benches that you can go sit on that sort of like overlooks uh you know like the kind of interior of the place I mean it's you know I can definitely see like what you're saying it's uh, a very interesting setup to where like you know you could kind of in either direction you know whether you go like outside the front of the house you're kind of like out in the fields where the uh, uh, you know like some of the livestock would have been and like the uh, crops and so forth and then you know you kind of go into the interior where you have some of these like showy like little gardens and stuff like that so, yeah, I mean, it is uh, definitely, you know, in that kind of like a framework, especially with all the other windows. And yeah, uh, definitely, I can see what you're saying about like breaking down these barriers. And then as I sort of talked about before, just sort of like the flow with the whole place, you know, I mean, it's, um, it all just feels really airy, really open and so forth. I mean, even when you're indoors you know there's kind of the sense that you are you know still in the driftless region uh, it's you know really fascinating I, I didn't find anything specifically saying that he had studied feng shui but that would not surprise me in the least if if he had because there is that flow to his whole work so uh he also uh became a bit of an inspiration to on ran too right ah uh, yes that's a that's a fascinating story um I would, I don't know how much to go into Ayn Rand because um, if you're a listener to this, a regular listener to the show, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, you know, the whole nine yards. But she is a hugely, um, you know, she's deceased back in the 80s, I think. But um, she was and is a hugely in, impactful writer and philosopher, mostly in the right wing of the Republican Party. Um, she believed in what she described as hero worship and that she, she was an atheist and very open about that at a time when almost nobody was open about that. Um, Wright was not precisely an atheist, but he essentially was, he said, I don't, I believe in God, but what you call God, I call nature is a pretty good paraphrase. Um, 
he believed in natural laws and in the earth is the only, there's a quote from him that the earth is the only body of God that we will ever see that natural law is what exists, that there are no, there is no supernatural. And so the two were quite similar on that. Um, as this renegade man who makes his own rules and is a super talented genius, she was a huge fan of his. And to be very blunt, she was probably somewhat in love with him. And she approached him for interviews. And I'm getting this from uh, the Atlasist, a pro and Rand uh, website and organization. So, I mean, it's not, this is not a secret or a theory. Um, she was very much into Frank Lloyd Wright. And he's almost an exact duplicate of the character of her first successful novel and one of the two most um, influential novels that she wrote, The Fountainhead. The Fountainhead um, describes a fictional character named Howard Rourke, who's a renegade architect who makes his own rules and butts heads with the establishment, but is eventually proven right. And I mean, there's you know, it's a 500-page book. There's a lot more to it. But but the character is essentially Frank Lloyd Wright. And even some of the things he says are almost word-for-word things that Wright had published in architectural magazines and essays that we should use the new materials, that buildings should make practical, logical sense, that just because they had certain kinds of turrets and you know, buttresses and such in the past, if they serve no purpose, then we shouldn't have them. Get rid of everything that you don't need and just use what you have, what you do need to create something that's in harmony with the land around it. And I mean, that's Frank Lloyd Wright's philosophy. That's Howard Rourke's philosophy. There, I mean, it's clear how much um, Rourke is based on Wright. Um, they met in real life. Uh, he was, they became friends. He was supposed to build a house for her, um, but they did not become any more than friends. He just didn't favor her. Um, they were both married at the time, but uh, between the two of them, they, they, they were not, uh, you know, wedded to uh, traditional yeah, they didn't subscribe. Ties, to yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe well, she well, she was pretty open, I believe, about having affairs. Um, oh, yes. Throughout quite a bit of her life. I mean, that wasn't really something that was like a secret or anything to that effect. So, And he went through, I believe he was legally married three times. And then there were, well, then there was his mistress that was murdered. But he was a free spirit you might say um, and I'd say almost kind of like I don't know a Hugh Hefner type he believed in enjoying himself and if that offended somebody or hurt somebody's feelings well it's too bad for them um, he actually made the statement to the press that two women were necessary for a man of artistic mind one to be mother of his children and the other to be his mental companion his inspiration and soulmate it's kind of funny because I think that was more or less like Arn Rand's like same position. Like she needed oh, yes. uh, two men, like one needed to be sort of like her intellectual equal uh, for that uh, kind of romantic pairing. And then she needed kind of a, a stud, you know, I mean, who <laughs> could be like her uh, stimulator physically more or less. So, um, yeah, yeah, she, she had a long affair with a guy 16 years younger than her named Nathaniel Brandon. Yeah. who was a psychologist who pioneered the concept of self-esteem being important. So yeah, it was, they, they're, they were, I won't say swingers, because that's way more organized. They were just kind of, I don't know, hedonists, you might say, people who followed their passions. That's what I would call them, people who followed their passions. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, definitely kind of an interesting overlap there uh, and that she would use him as kind of the uh, inspiration of the fountainhead, which I was not aware of. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's definitely had a very uh, fascinating influence on a lot of different figures. I mean, of course, you know, also the uh, the Church of Satan. Uh, That's, the, yes. Go ahead. 
Oh, it's just an interesting one because what you were uh, in some of your notes, you're like what they uh, mentioning to me. They had to go to great lengths to try to emphasize how their philosophy was somewhat different than hers, or something like that. Yes, the <laughs> the Church of Satan, for one thing, Anton Lavey was very open that he owned, owed a great intellectual debt to Ayn Rand, and he made public statements that I give people Ayn Rand's philosophy with some ritual thrown in, um, which is a pretty, pretty shocking thing to say, really, you know, that, yeah, I boosted this from somebody else, but I just added the magic element to it. That's, that's what I believe, you know, and they have this essay, um, well, it's quite a long article on the Church of Satan website um, by a guy named Nemo called Satanism Not Objectivism. Objectivism is the official name for the philosophy of Ayn Rand. And I read it, but they get pretty deep in the weeds with uh, philosophy and what they're about. And what I got from it was really the difference between objectivists and Satanists, other than the obvious, you know, you know, the, the symbols and stuff was just one of style um, or one of like the objectivists are what you might call Apollonian. They believe you should work very hard on things you really care about and achieve great things, achieve to the maximum of your capacity. Satanists of the Church of Satan type, not the Michael Aquino type, but the LeVay type, believe more, more important just to get pleasure and have fun. And in fact, that's their term, you know? Um, so that's kind of the difference but yeah, they had to get quite complicated in explaining that they're not the same thing. But we really respect Ayn Rand, which blew my mind because when I look at some of the politicians who've embraced Ayn Rand, uh, they're not Satanists, okay? <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, former Congressman, uh, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, um, Mitt Romney's running mate, a uh, huge Ayn Rand fan. Uh, gave copies of Atlas Shrugged, her other most important novel, to his interns. Um, the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are just all over right-wing circles. And for what it's worth, um, Donald Trump, a figure known for not reading a whole lot, when asked what his favorite book was, said that it was The Fountainhead and his favorite writer was Ayn Rand. So take that for what it's worth. But I'm, I'm sure he sees himself as the renegade hero who blah, blah, blah. But yes, makes his own rules. But it's amazing the different people that have been attracted to that philosophy. Yeah. I mean, was, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, it really is. And I mean, certainly... Uh, you know, it's fascinating. Again, Frank Roy Wright, a native son of Wisconsin, kind of personified that and uh, was enshrined in a lot of ways as sort of the embodiment of that in Ron's, uh, you know, Fountainhead book. And yeah, I mean, you also sort of see the uh, also kind of the darker underbelly of that, too, with some of the other things that went on in Taliesin. So, um, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll get into the uh, the murder proper now or the murders rather proper now, which is another sort of fascinating uh, aspect about this. And uh, OK. All right. Yes. So uh, before we get into them full blown, let's t tell us a bit about the accused murderer, Julian Carlton. What was his story? Well, that's the thing. Um, it's hard to track him down. Um, he had come with Wright from Chicago. Um, it's not even clear whether he was born in Alabama or immigrated from Barbados, but he had come to work at Taliesent with um, his wife, and they were, you know, they were working there as kind of like butler and cook type positions. And I mean, at this point, Wright is quite rich and he employs quite a staff. Um, there's, however, he did have a, there's a dark side to Frank Lloyd Wright. And he did have a very selfish streak that he would sometimes not pay people. And if, you know, if they, if they didn't pursue it hard enough, they might just not get paid. He was kind of notorious for stiffing people in money that he owed them. 
And it's believed that that's one of the possible motives for the massacre. Though really looking into it, and people have also said, well, maybe it was he just snapped from all the racism of his fellow workers. I mean, it's possible. But the crime was so horrific that I almost feel like you're looking at one of these mass killings and trying to explain why did this happen? There's really no rational answer. I mean, and even especially the way he went about it is really horrific. Um, He took a hatchet and killed um, six people with it, um, men, women, and children, and then doused the entire place in gasoline and set it on fire, um, killing another guy, um, and burned the place to the ground. Um, He then swallowed a large amount of acid and was found hiding in the basement. Um, He was taken into custody. He never made it to trial because he starved in the county jail. Now that at first set off, oh my God, there's gotta be, you know, something to this. He was probably murdered. After, after looking at everything I could find, I really don't think that's what happened. I, I think he probably damaged his organs by swallowing the poison and just eventually died of self-inflicted injuries a few weeks later. Um, His wife was held for two weeks and then released without charges and went back to Chicago. She said that he had been acting more and more erratic and that, you know, he'd had previous episodes of mental health crisis, but no one saw this coming. And there are people who have investigated this really thoroughly and there's never been an angle that somehow Wright knew about this before it happened. He was in Chicago um, when it occurred. Um, he apparently had no idea. There doesn't seem to be any other angle than kind of disgruntled worker snaps and kills everybody around him, which unfortunately is a story we've become familiar with. Um, but yes, it was a, it's still tied for the worst mass murder in Wisconsin history. Um, the only one that has equaled it for casualties is the 2012 Sikh temple shooting, which, you know, I mean, was still not a hatchet, you know, I mean, it was, it was an incredibly brutal crime, but we don't know that much about the man or what drove him to do such a thing. So that's, yeah, I'd love to have found some real, you know, fascinating strand there, but there just wasn't one. It was just a terrible tragedy. Now, Anna Karras, what was the the time frame that the murder occurred in, by the way? Was it it was like around 1912 or something like that? Uh, let me see here. August 15th, 1914. Okay, 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 okay. So yeah, yeah, a little before right around the time I guess World War One had started or something. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Interesting too. And what was it like about 20 years or something since the Holmes murders in Chicago or something to that effect? Yes, it would be. It would be all approximately 20 years, maybe 17. Um I don't think they all happened in one year. Um but yes. The same ones were like around the World Fair, right? Or yes. Like yes. It would have been about maybe 17 years after the World's Fair. You know, it's just interesting because, I mean, it kind of seems like they did have some of these like really high profile murders, like in this time frame, Uh, you know, again, with sort of the connection with Chicago and all of this as well. Uh, Again, I know, I mean, it's probably not related in any way, but again, it's just kind of like fascinating that uh, you did have some of this stuff playing out in a similar time frame. And I wasn't right in the um, in that World's Fair as well, if I remember correctly. I believe that now I'm winging it because I'm not a hundred percent on this, but I don't believe that he participated in the world's fair because his style of architecture was the opposite of what they're doing at the world's fair, which was imitation Greco-Roman. And he hated imitation Greco-Roman. Yeah, that is a good point. And in fact, in the just um, if I may, in the fountainhead, there's a whole condemnation of 
the World's Fair and why it was junk and why it was not good architecture. And it was just a worthless waste of everybody's time to try to mimic ancient Rome. So I don't, I don't think he was involved with that because he was directly opposed to that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. But as I understand it, too, I mean, this kind of had the effect of radicalizing Frank Lloyd Wright's cousin journalist, Richard Lloyd-Jones, right? Yes, that was something I found rather shocking. Um, Wright himself never, in anything I've seen, you know, I, I can't say I've covered everything, but nothing I've seen did he ever express any openly racist views um, however, the fact that so many, um, people were killed and that it was a black man that killed them did have a disturbing effect on his cousin, Richard Lloyd Jones, who at the time owned the local paper, the, well, the Wisconsin Journal, and he had not previously, um, expressed those kind of views, but later he not much later, like a couple of years later, he moves to Tulsa, Oklahoma and runs the newspaper that published the editorials and the stories that led to the Tulsa massacre of 1920, um, where just unbelievable numbers of black people were killed by white mobs and where you had, and this is, I couldn't believe it when I first heard this, but this is should have, something I should have known much younger, but you actually had the Ku Klux Klan bombing um, Black-owned businesses with planes. That is, is kind of a one-of-a-kind occurrence. But yes, the Tulsa Massacre, absolutely massive hate crime and extorted. It was, you know, it, people were riled up and encouraged to do violence by Wright's cousin, Richard Lloyd-Jones. I mean, there was a series of articles that accused black men of raping white women and things like that and generated an angry mob and fed the fire until violence just broke out. And the state of Oklahoma is currently, like right now, still looking for mass graves and trying to do something towards remedying the situation that, that was done and then was covered up. So yeah, that's a strange tangential connection. Yeah, and no, I mean, it is interesting. And just in general, I mean, how, um, <clears throat> you know, again, this whole area has kind of continued to, uh, I mean, attract a certain weird energy. And I mean, you know, these, uh, the killings were, I mean, I think inevitably a part of that. Uh, and that's not the only time either that the the studio and, um, um, or excuse me, not the studio, the, uh, the residency had burned down either. Uh, it had burned down a second time too, I think like around the 20s or 30s like that when they had, um, uh, I think first tried to put like electricity into it as well. So um, uh, the- actual 1925, I believe, yes. Now, some people asserted that it might have been arson, but Wright himself said it was a malfunctioning telephone. But it did, it burned the thing to the ground again. But he rebuilt it again. And it's, it stands to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the current version is actually like the third version of it too. So that's kind of the other thing is it's, a, uh, as I understand it, it's a quite a bit different from what uh, the original version was like. So, I mean, on the one hand, uh, I mean, that's in keeping with Wright's character to constantly kind of be pressing forward. But I mean, on the flip side of the coin, it does make it a little difficult Um you know, if you are trying to look back on the murder to get a sense maybe of uh, how it might have, you know, unfolded and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, one of those things, it's just really fascinating that the, you know, again, I mean, it's, it's such a grisly murder and it plays out. It is, it is. Uh, and it, go ahead. Or, you know, perpetually be this kind of run of bad luck for the kind of living area too. Uh, the studio never burned down. Uh, miraculously or not I mean who knows but yes uh, living quarters did have a tendency to do that so yeah I mean it's just a very strange thing I mean you know it's uh, not anything that really anything nefarious necessarily jumps out at you uh, though again uh, 
you know, it is a powerful region. I mean, it does seem like they were trying to harness some of that energy and it's hard to say, I mean, how far they went with that, certainly. That is, it is. It's a very interesting aspect. I could find nothing that linked right to actually doing anything like what we would call a cult or magical, but he gets so far into like the land kind of tells me what should be built here that I kind of commune with the surroundings and then build the building that should naturally come out of those surroundings. That it's almost like an unconscious kind of mystical interaction. Not, well, you know, that's like the thing though, yeah. is, I mean, he does have like um, some of the art I had gotten there, uh, certainly. Uh, one of the pieces I think was kind of like taken uh, from like a stained glass uh, window he designed it was basically a variation on the tree of life, uh, which seemed like was a kind of a common thing that he did uh, in a lot of his work. But again, I mean, it wasn't a conventional take, certainly on the tree of life. But I mean, that is sort of interesting in keeping with like a lot of the Celtic stuff that he was into. Uh, certainly, I mean, there was also the Asian influence, Japanese influence, I think specifically. Which was huge, um, yes. And I mean, there were also these sort of statues as well, these almost like guardian spirit things uh, that you would occasionally see as well, uh, which again, I got kind of a replica of. I guess I'll have to take a picture of that and put it up. But I mean, oh, it, yes. does, uh, it, it does seem like, I mean, he was into some of this kind of stuff, though it was very subtle. And I mean, it was certainly done in more of a modernistic approach where it wouldn't be... Uh, obvious but i mean that seems like that would have been in keeping you know with what you're saying i mean he didn't like sort of the direct thing that uh you know that was contemporary with some of the greco roman revival stuff that was going on so yeah i mean it does <clears throat> you know again i get that uh yeah i mean it was typically the common view of right that i mean he was more of a secular artist and there wasn't really uh, these kinds of more mystical trappings to it but that's not at all really I think the sense you get when you actually go there I mean beyond just sort of like the communion with the nature as I said before it seemed clear to me that uh, the way the structures were designed was to really harness the energy of the particular areas which I think is partly why uh, he went to great lengths to almost kind of mimic the landscapes within the interiors and so forth um you know, it's kind of almost a sort of sympathetic magic. And then, I mean, you are sort of uh, kind of subtly working in some of these, I mean, almost sigils and so forth into the structures. Yes, so, I could totally see that. Uh, unconsciously, some kind of like what some people say about Lovecraft, that he was doing something without necessarily knowing he was doing it. Yeah. I mean, possibly something to that effect. But I mean, yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> it is, I mean, just again, very curious. Uh I would definitely have to look more into that. But I mean, just having been there, I did get the sense that uh, Wright was interested in some of this stuff. I mean, uh, it wasn't maybe something that he really wanted to draw a lot of attention to, but I mean, there is like a certain presence to it. Well, the first really like high profile thing that he built was a Unitarian church. So, I mean, that was kind of his way of going about um, what you might call spiritual things like just and he just I'm, i believe in the laws of nature rather than like an anthropomorphic god and that that's kind of how he how he thought about things well do you have anything else on frank lloyd right here before we wrap up sir um let me see <laughs> well once you get into the uh the Ayn Rand connections, you could really go on and on and on. But um, as far as Frank Lloyd Wright, um, just fascinating architect, really changed um, the world we live in, a genius in his time, and kind of like a Mozart or a Picasso, a person whose work is so great that you kind of got to overlook however he lived his life. Um, that's kind of what I would say would be the last word for me. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he is a uh, an endlessly fascinating character, no doubt. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, you can definitely still see the reverberations of his work. I mean, to this day, uh, I think probably those 60s, 70s kind of seem like the apex of it. Kind of oddly enough, too, I'm, you know, being a Italian, I mean, it may seem strange, but I was kind of reminded of some of those like 60s, 70s bachelor type pad things. Um, oh, yeah, there's a, like a direct. Con- yes, that evolved from that most definitely, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I don't know if the shag carpet was authentic. They <laughs> That's did probably not him, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be kind of funny, though. I mean, if he did eventually incorporate that. But uh, yes. Uh, all right. Well, Vincent, it's always a pleasure to have you on here. And uh, definitely have to have you back again here at some point soon. Uh, there's just so much we can tackle here with Wisconsin. Oh, yes. You know, check out some of the stuff I have up on the Patreon to get a better sense of uh, this house. I mean, it really is quite remarkable. Um, There's a vibe to it. And yeah, I mean, it does have this sort of tragic element as well. Um, So, yeah. And it does play into this kind of broader area, which we'll look at again. And I mean, just this whole sort of tradition uh, of this kind of Celtic thing playing out there. It's... um, well as you guys will see in maybe a later uh, episode that i'll have up here it's uh very interesting in light of some of the other stuff going on in wisconsin and elsewhere in the country all right folks here's a quick uh, little postscript for you guys on a few things that i had uh, dug up uh here because it was kind of gnawing at me a bit i felt like uh vincent and i were leaving a little bit of meat on the bone with taliesin and frank lloyd wright And sure enough, my suspicions proved to be correct. Apparently, Wright did attend the 1893 Chicago's World Fair, though he was later quite a critic of it. Uh, That might have been because of his uh, strange relationship with Lewis Sullivan, uh, who put on one of these structures there. Sullivan uh, would later become kind of something of a mentor to Wright, but he apparently, I think it fired him some point during the uh, lead up to the uh, Chicago's World Fair. He was certainly a major influence in the prairie style architecture that Wright later developed. So there is kind of that interesting connection there. Uh, Wright, as I said, did attend the Chicago's World Fair and was uh, uh, at least publicly quite, uh, as I said, unimpressed by it, though. Again, he might have been first significantly exposed to Japanese architecture there. So even if... um, he put on a good face of not being um, very impressed by it. It might have had a much longer lasting influence than uh, he was willing to acknowledge. Um, another bizarre thing that I encountered looking around, which I have not been able to confirm uh, reliably yet. I'm just going to like throw it out there is that, uh, Wright actually might have been a relative of H.H. H. Holmes, like about a 14th cousin or something like that. I mean, they were not, you know, close relations or anything like that by um, any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, there, there definitely is a possibility of a family relation, which again is just bizarre in light of... Um, you know, some of the uh, strange deaths that have occurred at uh, both uh, residencies that Wright uh, lived at and uh, his family members had designed and so forth. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those things, man. I don't know. Again, it's not something I've been able to reliably confirm, but um, it's uh, something to definitely look into. That would be... Uh, quite an interesting development i had uh forgotten but lauren coleman the great uh fortian uh researcher and cryptozoologist uh, has actually written quite extensively on frank lloyd wright over the years and um yeah there was a few things that he had brought up that are really quite relevant to this but just to give you a quick rundown of a few other points with frank lloyd wright and taliesin so um frank lloyd wright's family was actually largely welsh um going back uh to i think his father had come over from the old country so Uh, They were not that far uh, removed, which could explain one of the reasons why there was such an affinity for um, this kind of druidic mythology 
uh, within a lot of the place names and so forth associated with Frank Lloyd Wright and members of his family. Uh, his sisters were also really big in the um, Unitarian Church as well, uh, which is quite a liberal denomination and has been like, uh, you know, linked uh, to some <clears throat> more esoteric practices by uh, stray groups and so forth. I mean, it was also a major influence on the, you know, kind of transcendentalist movement and things like that in the United States during the mid 19th century as well. So that is quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, there is this aspect to keep in mind. And it does seem to me that uh, Wright did incorporate a fair amount of uh, kind of Celtic mythology into some of his early artwork. Um, I had mentioned the Tree of Life in the initial recording. That's one that's uh, rather interesting. But he also um, brought in these a uh, couple of different figures. Like uh, one were these two that are called Nakoma and Nakamis, which were sculptures that had actually uh, been commissioned for the uh, country club in Madison, Wisconsin. Supposedly, these figures were based on uh, Native American mythology. They were apparently some of the last kind of lifelike things that he did uh, or speculative things that he did before he went to totally focus on the prairie style architecture that he was most famous for. Um, but yeah, they were supposedly based on one of Bagos. But more interesting were these uh, sprites taken from Celtic folklore that he used in the Midway Gardens in Chicago. Uh, they're you know, very similar to uh, fairies and things like that. Uh, I actually got a replica of one of these, which I would have been alluding to. I'll put it up uh, in a photograph here with this. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, again, he did a very contemporary take on these, much like his, you know, view on the tree of life. But it's still, you know, kind of evident to me that he did have this interest in some of the native uh, Celtic mythology. And no doubt, I'm guessing he got a lot of this from his family. Uh, so, yeah, this is like kind of an aspect of his career and life, I think, that's probably downplayed in a lot of cases. Um but yeah, there's a few other things, though, that are even more relevant uh, with him and his uh, in terms of also his kind of spiritual beliefs. Um, also, with the architecture, to another point I wanted to make out, besides incorporating some elements of Japanese art, he also was big in Mayan revival, too. I just want to bring this up right quick, which is very interesting. I mean, some of this stuff was used quite extensively uh, in the Blade Runner movies, for instance. Um, but yeah, he did start to incorporate that, uh, especially in some of his works in California, uh, along with some of the Japanese motifs and so forth. So he did, in addition to sort of like the Celtic uh, tributes, there was also references to a lot of these, you know, indigenous traditions as well, uh, you know, elements of Japanese and Mayan uh, architecture and concepts that were also incorporated into the structures that he was designing. And he definitely did have a keen interest in occultism, as it turns out, and uh, other weird things. Uh, one of the main gurus associated with him was Gurdjieff, who uh, was also, I guess, uh, somebody who continued to be followed by some of Frank Lloyd Wright's descendants. But uh, I believe it was his second wife who was quite been to Gurdjieff and, uh, of course, uh, Wright knew him personally. I don't know if he was quite as influenced by him as some of his other family members, but uh, there was definitely a connection there. It's also interesting to note, too, that uh, according to uh, Lauren Coleman, which he you know, documents here pretty conclusively, that uh, Wright was also an OG member of the Fortean Society, which is really interesting. Uh, especially in terms of what it's, you know, it seems like, I mean, he did try to build a lot of his uh, structures, very interesting locations, to put it mildly. Uh, this is something Lauren Coleman did a really great job of outlining, actually, in this excellent article from uh, June 26, 2012, Frank White and Synchromysticism. But yeah, I mean, you have... Uh, you know, the falling water house they designed in Fayette uh, County, which was on the uh, grounds of a former Masonic Lodge, uh, the Milken Palace House here, uh, and Illinois, some other interesting ones that were sort of designed like that with the kind of Japanese and Aztec artwork, Mayan and so forth. Um, 
Another one that's really interesting is the John Snowden house, which kind of played into the uh, infamous Black Dahlia murders. Uh, this is one of the things that, um, you know, is really interesting is it seems like there were several high profile murders that were close to uh, residencies. So well, obviously there is the one grizzly murder, you know, uh, Tallison itself. Uh, and then also this John Snowden house here also factored into the Black Dahlia thing. Uh, though apparently it was his oldest son who had designed this one specifically. It was based on Mayan revival movement, uh, but Frank Lloyd Wright had also embraced that. See, it was um, speculated, the house was owned by this George Hodel guy, and it's speculated that Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, was actually tortured, murdered, and desecrated by uh, Dr. George Hodel within this structure, so that's quite interesting. Uh, and it was used uh, also later, again, ironically, a shooting structure in The Aviator, a Martin Scorsese movie about Howard Hughes. Um, so, yeah, that's also kind of interesting that it plays into that. Of course, also, the architecture was heavily influential, as I mentioned before, in the Blade Runner movies uh, and several others. The Rocketeer was like another one. Uh, so, yeah, there's just been a lot of uh, interesting things kind of associated with Frank Lloyd Wright and um, some of these structures, the places where they've been, some of the things that have happened there. Uh, I mean, I do get the sense that, you know, especially based on uh, his interest with a lot of these uh, different groups and most especially his uh, his time as a 40 in here. And it also, there were some rumors as well that uh, he knew Nicholas Rorick, the infamous kind of Russian uh, spy slash mystic uh, who had made inroads all the way up to Henry Wallace, the vice president. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was probably a part of his entourage as well. So these were, you know, another sort of group of mystically inclined people that Wright was kind of in the backdrop with, I mean, it makes sense in terms of uh, the fact that he also was uh, in some of the same circles with Gurdjieff and that kind of thing. Raises some questions to possibly if he might have encountered uh, some of you know, Adrena Puharic's crowd since these were, uh, you know, also, I mean, very incestuous in this time and place. But yeah, it definitely seems that um, Bright did have a keen interest in. Uh, some rather mystical things and uh i do suspect had uh, knowledge of sacred geometry and did incorporate that into you know at least some of the more prominent structures that he built certainly some of the statues and things like that are um it's a quite interesting take on uh, mythological figures and concepts so yeah there's um a lot here and again it is interesting that uh in the uh, case of Towson, there's no question that there was a quite a brutal murder that unfolded there in 1914. And then, of course, later, uh, it was possible that the uh, Black Dahlia murder had also happened at another structure, uh, not designed by Wright, but by his son, but based upon a lot of his principles and also kind of a Mayan revival weird stuff that they were into. So, yeah, there's um, a lot to this man of mystery. Um, and that also doesn't even count some of the use of his uh, um, architecture, too, in the great James Bond movie, Diamonds for Are Forever, which is, uh, again, another one that's just loaded with um, some interesting stuff, to put it mildly. Uh, but yeah, so on that note, I though think we've uh, covered enough here for now, so I'm going to sign off. Uh, you know, again, there is definitely a lot to this uh, particular topic, and it's one that I'll try to revisit again here at some point. And certainly I will get more into this location, but it is fascinating once again that there was the presence of right here, that his family uh, does have these Welsh roots and that there does seem to be some knowledge of this kind of Celtic mythos that he did incorporate in some of the place names, obviously Taliesin and some of the uh, architecture that he was doing at this time will be uh, relevant uh, in a show that I'm kind of working on here and hopefully be out in the coming weeks. But until then, guys, I just want to again thank you guys all for listening. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. Sick and tired of fucking up, sick and tired of pushing love. Voodoo blue got you sick.
in it Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the gold chain We were raped, my people there, they're feeling me Down low skin, roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Forget about your maple It's just that one 